If you would, turn with me to the Gospel of John, chapter 9. If you're using uh, the Red Pew Bible, it should be on page 895. Right before this happens, right before the moment we're about to read this, maybe not right before, but Jesus has been dealing with some rather hostile uh, Pharisees. And he has made, he hasn't really made it mysterious at all about who he is. Uh, When they, the, the more intense his claims become, the more he challenges their position, uh, they're finally driven to the point where they ask, Who do you think you are? Are you better than Abraham? And in no uncertain terms, Jesus says, well, yeah. Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am. Jesus claims that he is, in fact, Abraham's God, Abraham's Redeemer, the God of Israel. And so, to prove that they they weren't left in the dark at all, uh, they pick up stones to kill him. They know exactly what he's saying. And then what follows, of course, he gets away. It's not his time to die yet. Um, this next episode is actually connected to that. We don't know how soon after this takes place. Um, it seems unlikely that it happened the very moment he was uh, getting away from the Pharisees in the temple, but he's certainly in Jerusalem um, so, we don't know when it's connected to it, but we know by its theme that it's connected, and you'll see what I mean as we go through it. John chapter 9, verse 1. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, it wasn't this man, it wasn't that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spat on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, Isn't this the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, It is he. Others said, No, but he's like him. And he kept saying, I am the man. So they said to him, Then how were your eyes opened? He answered, The man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, Go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, Where is he? He said, I don't know. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. Now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight, and he said to them, He put mud on my eyes, and I washed, and I see. 
Some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, How can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. So they said again to the blind man, What do you say about him, since he has opened your eyes? He said, He is a prophet. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked them, Is this your son, who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered, We know that this is our son and that he was born blind, but how he now sees we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him. He is of age. He'll speak for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be the Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, He is of age. Ask him. So, for the second time, they called the man who had been blind and said to him, Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered, Whether he is a sinner... I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. They said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I've told you already and you wouldn't listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? And they reviled him saying, You are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. The man answered, Why, this is an amazing thing. You don't know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God doesn't listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. And never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, You were born in utter sin, and would you teach us? And they cast him out. Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and having found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, And who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, Are we also blind? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say, We see, your guilt remains. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would open our eyes to behold wonderful things in your word, uh, to behold the truth that is here, what this says about our own blindness and our own sight. Give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts to understand, we pray in Jesus' name. 
Amen. I'm, not, I'm sure you've had these moments where maybe it was in the midst of a particular project and you were working really hard and things kept going wrong but you persevered and you made it through and kind of as the project completed, you saw the end of it and you said, that was worth it. That was worth the time. It was worth the suffering. Uh, I remember growing up, our family would go with our church often to, uh, we, we grew up in the Methodist church, and so we would go to a camp called Camp Samatanga, which is, um, I think it's up 59. And um, the tradition at the end of, uh, of a weekend or a week at Samatanga was uh, that you hiked up the mountain to where they had this big cross, and then you kind of could look over the whole camp and, and see everything. <coughs> oh, I'm sorry. Now, uh, you need to know that I was not a particularly athletic youngster, and so the hiking was not my favorite part because um, it was a mountain. It was an uphill. Well, it was really it was a hill, but it was still walking up. Um, and so it was hard to walk up to walk up that hill. You're kind of doing the switchbacks all the while, and but then when you would finally get up there, right, and you would get to the place where uh, where this cross was, and you could see everything. You could say, that was worth it. Yesterday, uh, Rebecca and I, with some other friends, ran 10 miles. And about nine, and about nine miles, my legs just turned into like two pillars of rock. Like they just didn't want to move at all. Thankfully, we were right there at the end. And so as we came down the downhill stretch and my watch, uh, little GPS watch, and it let me know that we'd hit the 10-mile mark, I could look back and I could say, that was worth it. Uh, that experience, and you've probably had something like that happen to you, that experience is the experience of the man in this passage. Uh, he has endured a, a lifetime of blindness, and then he endures persecution from the Pharisees, but what we see when he reaches the end is it was all worth it. But before we get there, what's really going on in this passage, if you remember back in John 8, uh, Jesus said, I am the light of the world. He called himself the light of the world. Now he does a miracle to demonstrate what that means. Jesus' signs are never just empty miracles or empty signs. He always does them with a purpose to demonstrate something. And what we see in this passage is that the light of the world opens eyes, opens many eyes, but it also blinds others. The light of the world opens many eyes, but it blinds or shuts others. And we're going to look at this in three episodes. The first one we're going to look at is the eye-opening mercy of Jesus. And so um, Jesus and his disciples are walking through Jerusalem, and they pass this man. And I want you to notice something. Jesus is the one who sees the man. He looks at the man. What is about to happen happens because of Jesus' initiative. Let's talk about this man's condition in Jesus' day, if you were blind, and probably not too much different from our own, uh, to be blind meant that you pretty much were at the mercy of other people, right? This man could not hold down work. Uh, he was not able to provide for himself, and so he had to beg. Um, he had to beg, and he relied on the charity of others. But he was also, he was also the victim of a sad misconception, and you can hear it in what the disciples say. 
right? So Jesus and the disciples are walking along, and Jesus looks at this man. And when Jesus looks at him, the disciples look at him too, and they say, Lord, who sinned, this man or his parents, right? They, they make this unbiblical assumption that particular suffering is related to a particular sin, right? It wasn't uncommon uh, for, for some Jews anyway to believe that you could even sin in the womb. How that's possible, I don't know. But so the question is, who sinned? This guy is blind. Clearly somebody did something wrong. And we still do that, don't we? Uh, even, even though uh, we live in a Christianized culture, um, and even though many of us would call ourselves Christians, we still practice this kind of version of karma, right? That when we see somebody, and karma, right? This Eastern thought that what goes around comes around. If you do good, you'll get good. And if you do bad, you'll get bad, right? Um, you know you do this because you see somebody who's particularly down on their luck, as we say. And the first thought to your head is, well, man, what did they do? Or maybe you know somebody who is repeatedly suffering. And you think, man, have they done something wrong? And vice versa, if things are going really well, right? What do we, what do we say? We say, you must be living right. Uh, we lived in Jackson for four years, and there was a, a suburb of Jackson called Ridgeland to the north. And the sign uh, by the road as you went into Ridgeland, as you drove through Ridgeland, the sign said, living right in Ridgeland. Right? The, uh, and you know, the, the implied message is, if you're living here, you've done something right. If you're living in that hole called Jackson, no, 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 you've done something wrong. You want to live here in Ridgeland, right? We practice, even though, uh, even though we might call ourselves Christians, yet we practice functional karma. But that is not a biblical understanding of sin and suffering. Right? That is not, you cannot look at, Jesus is saying, you can't look at this blind man and say, somebody sinned to make him blind. Now, sin, suffering exists because of sin in general, because of the fall. Because we live in a broken world, we have things like blindness and deafness. And disability. Those things would not exist in a perfect world. And so, in some sense, you can say suffering exists as a result of sin, but only in general, only in the big picture. And you, what you cannot do, and what the Bible does not do, is you cannot move from that general idea to a specific sin. You cannot say in every single case, that this particular instance of suffering is connected to this particular sin. The examples of that in the Bible are very few. I can only think of Moses' sister Miriam, who when she rebelled against God, God uh, cursed her with leprosy. Okay? That's, the, that's one of the only episodes I can think of. If you want proof to the other fact that suffering cannot always be traced to a particular sin, just read the book of Job. Job is a man who did do everything right. He was living right. And to demonstrate his glory, God causes incredible suffering in Job's life. And what do Job's friends do? They come to him and they say, well, surely you did something wrong. There's some sin you've left unconfessed. 
These things have to be the consequences of your sin. And Job says, I can't think of anything, right? Job has to now, not only is Job covered in ashes, covered in sores, he's lost his whole family, now he has to defend himself against his friends who say, man, you better keep looking. There's some kind of sin in your life. Sin has consequences, most assuredly, but we cannot draw a one-to-one correspondence between physical disability, for instance, and sin. You can't do it. The Bible won't let you do it. Jesus won't let you do it. He doesn't let his disciples do it right here. There was a, there was a particularly, particularly well-known Christian leader who, uh, when Hurricane Katrina hit New Orleans, made the audacious claim that the hurricane was God's punishment on New Orleans. You cannot say that. Not because it's not politically correct. You cannot say it because it is not true. You have no grounds for such statements. Uh, the Bible doesn't do that. That is a misunderstanding, and yet we want to draw that. And so Jesus corrects that, right? He says, it's not that this man sinned. It's not that his parents sinned. Rather, he was born blind so that you could see. Did you catch that? He was born blind so that your eyes would be opened to the works of God, so that the works of God would be revealed. So we can even say that suffering, not only can suffering not be connected one-to-one with a particular sin, but suffering oftentimes is used by God to display His works. And we need look no further than the cross for that. Jesus is the one who suffered so that the works of God could be displayed in him. And so Jesus uses this man and his life of suffering to display his mercy, to display his works. And I mentioned it in Sunday school. We always want to look backwards to the cause. Where did this particular suffering, where did this particular disability, where did that come from? How did it get here? And what Jesus does is he answers, he answers their question. They want, to know, they want to know, why is this man blind? But they want to answer it with a cause. Jesus answers, why is this man blind, with purpose. We want to look backwards to cause. Jesus looks forward to purpose. In a sense, he says, it doesn't really matter how he got blind. What matters is what I'm going to do with it and what I'm about to display through it. And so Jesus says... This man was born blind so that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming. Jesus is saying, right, the the day is while he is here in the flesh. The night is when he is about to be gone. And so he says this work, um, he's about to move from these works of healing to a work of suffering. And so... Now is the time for this to happen. Now is the time for us to go to work. And having said that, he spits on the ground and he makes mud and he smears it on this man's eyes, which sounds really disgusting. Uh, It is really disgusting. And we're not really sure uh, why Jesus does it. Uh, It's going to provoke a controversy with the Pharisees, and maybe that's why he does it. He could have simply uttered a word. He could have snapped and healed the man's eyes. But for whatever reason, Jesus opts to use spit and mud. And then he tells the man to go and wash. 
to go and wash in the pool. And so, while the method is questionable, we're not really sure why Jesus does it, the results are astonishing. This man goes uh, with mud over his blind eyes, and he probably, he's memorized the way that the streets work in Jerusalem. He probably also had some help to get there. But he goes down to the pool of Siloam, and he gets in, and he washes, and as the last bit of mud is cleared off of his eyes, he opens them, and he sees. And this man, who had known only darkness, can now see light, color, shapes, texture, people. Right? His whole reality up to this point had been what he could hear, only what he could smell, only what he could touch. But now, he has the full picture of everything he can see. The light of the world has brought physical light to this man's eyes. I want to say something real quick just about his obedience, because it's thorough. But I want you to notice that the main actor in this healing is not the man, but Jesus. Jesus doesn't ask him for permission. He doesn't, this man does not approach Jesus. Jesus sees this blind man and chooses him out of the crowd and says, I want to heal his eyes. And so what this man does is he simply responds to what he's been told to do. He didn't earn the healing by his goodness. That would be karma. That would be moralism. And he didn't earn it by his faith. That would be the prosperity gospel. We reject that as well. The man's obedience doesn't heal him. The waters in the pool don't heal him. The mud on his eyes doesn't heal him. It's the power of God breaking into his life that restores his sight. And everything this man does is a response to God's gracious action. But then there's this second episode. We see the eye-opening mercy of Jesus, but we also see the blind unbelief of the Pharisees. Right? The man, his eyes are opened on his way home. Neighbors and friends, they see him and they say, Whoa, is that the same guy who used to sit and beg over on Main Street? No, that can't be him. Yeah, I'm pretty sure it's him. And all the while he's saying, Hey, it's me, it's me. And they say, Well, how did this happen? How would happen to you? How did your... Eyes, and he just recounts the truth. This man, Jesus, he made mud, he put him on my eyes, he told me to wash, and I, my sight was restored. And so he's taken to the Pharisees. And now that's not necessarily negative. I don't think his neighbors are trying to hurt him. But this is a religious thing. This is a religious society. And so when something big like this happens in your life, you go to your religious leaders, the leaders of your local synagogue, and you say, hey, what happened? You do the same thing with our elders and with me. You come to me and you say, hey, this happened in my life. Can we talk about it? And so they take him to the Pharisees. But then we get this note. It was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. It was the Sabbath. And Jesus has gotten in trouble here before. These Pharisees, they really liked their Sabbath. They really liked their Sabbath Regulations. They really liked being able to say, here's what you can do. But really what they like to say is, here's what you can't do on the Sabbath. You can't knead dough or mud or clay. 
And Jesus did that. You can't even heal unless it's a life or death situation. You're going to have to save that for another day. This is the Sabbath. Thankfully, Jesus doesn't care about man-made regulations. He doesn't care about their concerns. In fact, it almost seems like he provokes them. And you can see how dangerous their position is. They miss this amazing work of God because they are so concentrated on their own interpretation. Isn't that not the, the definition of blindness? They miss something miraculous because, well, they're blind to it. They want to, they're, as they say, uh, they strain, in, in straining out a gnat, they swallow a camel. And we can do the same thing. And so they interrogate the man. They say, how? Uh, how did he do this? And the man answers, he put mud on my eyes. I washed. I see. He sticks to his story. And then we have this division. Some of the Pharisees say, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. Silly Pharisees. Yeah, he restores sight to the blind, but he's not keeping the Sabbath, so he's probably not from God. What better day? What, what is, let me ask you this. What is rest for? Why do you need a day of rest? For healing, right? It's a day to recuperate from the six days of labor. After you run ten miles, you stop and you rest because your muscles have to heal. So then what better day to heal someone than on the Sabbath? What better day to do works of mercy than on the Sabbath? What better day to celebrate God than in restoring sight to the blind? And then there are others. There are others who say, how... Uh, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? So there's this division. There's the guys who say, there's no way he's breaking the law or their law. And then there's the other guys who say, I don't know. That miracle's pretty compelling. It's clear this guy at least knows who God is. He seems to have some kind of connection with God. Otherwise, he couldn't do what this man says he did. And so they ask him, and at least he's making the beginnings of faith. He says, he is a prophet. 18, the Jews don't believe him. And it's not just that they don't believe his story, but they're just like, ah, no, no, he wasn't born blind. This isn't that guy. Let's call his parents. Let's call his parents and see what they can tell us. So they get his parents in there, and they interrogate them, and they say, is this your son, and was he born blind? Yes, that's our son. And yes, he was born blind. How, did he, how was his sight restored? We don't know. Ask him. And we don't need to be too hard on the parents. Uh, they're afraid. Okay, everyone is afraid of the Jews. Everyone is afraid of these religious leaders. Um, they have the power to cast you out of your synagogue, and that's a big deal. That's your community. It's where you hear the word. And so it's fearful to be brought in front of a court like this. And so they just say, he is of age, ask him. The remarkable thing is not the fact that they... Uh, that they don't fully answer. The remarkable thing is the continuing unbelief of the Pharisees. Don't miss that. 
They get this man's story. They can clearly see that he now clearly sees, and yet, oh, he must be telling us a lie. Get his parents. And after they confirm his testimony, they go back to him. They call him back in. Verse 24, they tell him, give glory to God. Another way of saying, kind of like what we say, um, do you swear to tell the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth? What's ironic is when they say give glory to God, they're commanding this man to do something that they seem unwilling to do themselves. They do not want to give God the glory. They want to give themselves the glory, but they tell him to do it. They say, we know that this man is a sinner. And look, that keeps coming up. And what what they mean when they say that is this man lives a life apart from God. He cannot know God. He is doing the exact opposite of of what a godly person would do. We know that this man is a sinner. And his answer is great. He says, well, whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. Whatever your issue is, I don't know. Here's what I know. I was blind, and now I see. Simple testimony. Bold, simple testimony from this beggar in front of all of these learned, well-educated, powerful men. I don't know what you're talking about. Here's what I know. I was blind, Now I see. And they don't have a response to that. They said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? They keep going back to the same question. They're really concerned with how it happened. And I really really like this guy. He's had enough. He gets a little sarcastic with him, right? I've already told you this, and you didn't hear me the first time. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to be his disciples too? Right? Gets a little punchy with them. And as we've already seen them handle Jesus, so they handle this man. They insult him, right? Because if you can't win an argument, just insult somebody. Do you want to also become his disciples? Verse 28, they insulted him, saying, you're his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses, right? They start standing on their tradition. They start standing on the law of Moses. We know that Moses spoke from God. We know where Moses comes from. We don't know where Jesus comes from. And what they mean when they say that is not his physical origin, but they mean where he gets his authority from. We know where Moses gets his authority from, and we get our authority from Moses, supposedly. But Jesus, I don't know about this guy. We don't know where his power comes from. We don't know where his authority comes from. They're blind. They can't see it. And so this man, this beggar, again, confronts them. He's like, that's pretty amazing. You don't know where he comes from? You don't know where he gets his power from? You don't know his, the, uh, the authority that he has? And yet, never in the history of the world has it ever been said that a man received his sight. And yet, here I am. I've received my sight. If this man were not from God, if he were not connected to God, if he were a sinner as you say he is, There's no way he could do what he did to me. So, you're wrong, which they don't like. They insult him again. You were born in utter sin, you beggar, you blind man. How dare you teach us? And they cast him out. They throw him out, uh, probably of the synagogue, um, He probably could still go to the temple, but their hostility is clear and their unbelief is clear. And this says something about the cost of true belief. 
that, that this man, in a sense, he's just gained his eyesight, but now he has lost his earthly community. He has been cut off from meaningful relationship. So let's see how Jesus responds. Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and having found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, Who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. Now, that, that may not strike you as odd, uh, because we know the story when, he sa- when it says this man worshipped Jesus. But that would have been unheard of in his day. If you were a God-fearing Jew, you did not worship another man. And so for those who claim that Jesus never claimed to be God or that, or that people only worship Jesus after his death and resurrection, that that, the, that that was really something made up by the later church to deify Jesus, right here, this man falls down and worships Jesus. Now, in every other instance in the Bible... When this happens, when a man falls down to worship somebody who is not God, be it an angel or another man, that angel or that other person usually says, don't worship me. You see it in the Old Testament, you see it in the New Testament. They say, don't worship me, I'm not God. What does Jesus say? Nothing. He accepts this man's worship. That tells you right there that Jesus' deity was not made up later by the church. Jesus understood himself to be God, and he accepts this man's worship. And so this is the last episode, the glad-hearted worship of the redeemed. Even though this man had lost just about everything, yet he had gained Jesus. And so while owning Jesus in the world will cost you, Jesus owning you in the world will make up for the loss. He might have lost his synagogue, but he gained heaven. And then Jesus goes on to say this, For judgment I came into this world, so that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Now, Jesus has already said he did not come into the world for judgment back in John 3, and he reiterated it in another place. So what in the world does he mean, for judgment I came into the world? Does he all of a sudden switched his tune? And what he means is this, that when, light, when the light is turned on, it is discriminating. It makes a judgment. Um, if we were all in a dark room, and I mean no lights, no windows, no nothing, everything looks the same. But as soon as the lights come on, there is now a, a judgment is made. Discrimination happens. You can see where the furniture is. You can see who people are. Light, by nature, discriminates between what is in the light and what is still in darkness. And so Jesus is saying that as I shine, people will divide into two camps. There will be the blind who come to see. But those who claim that they see, their blindness will be revealed. And that's what he's talking about when the Pharisees uh, that are standing nearby say, you're not saying we're blind too, are you? 
He says, the very fact that you know you can see means you remain in your guilt. The very fact that you claim to know the truth but not own the truth and not do the truth means that you remain in your guilt. And so what you're seeing happen is, one, this man's physical sight is restored, so now he can see, but also he comes out of spiritual darkness. Not only was he in physical darkness, but he was also in spiritual darkness. Now he is restored to sight. He believes in Jesus and he worships. But the Pharisees, they're in, they're in, they're in physical light, but they are not in spiritual light. They are in spiritual darkness because they refuse to listen to Jesus. They refuse to come to the light. J.C. Riles, a pastor uh, in the 18th, 19th century, um, and he says, The same fire which melts wax hardens clay. And what he means is, right, that the same light of Jesus that opens the, the eyes of this humble man hardens the proud. That because these men refuse uh, to come to Jesus, refuse to acknowledge who they are, they will remain in their sin. And so the light divides between those who see and those who don't, who are blinded by the light. So what, what do we do with that? How do, I, how, do I, how do I see? How do I receive my spiritual sight? Remember what he told the man to do? He told the man to go wash in the pool of Siloam. That word Siloam means sent, or he who is sent. John mentions that name for a reason. Jesus is the one who is sent. Jesus is the sent one. And so Jesus tells this man to go wash in the pool named sent. You must come if you want sight, you must go wash in Siloam. You must come to him who was sent. Let's pray. Lord in heaven, again, we pray for spiritual eyes. Lord, we don't want to be in the dangerous position like the Pharisees of those who claim to see, those who claim to know, those who claim to understand, and yet completely miss the works of God. We do not want to miss the light of the world. And so, light of the world, would you bring us out of darkness? Would you open our eyes to behold your wonderful glory? We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.